and welcome back to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. In part one of this week's episode, we heard about the events leading up to the death of 38-year-old mother of two, Heather Bell, how she was thrown from her horse when it became spooked by a Chinook helicopter flying overhead, and what happened in the months following her tragic death. So in part two, Mark is going to discuss the resulting inquest, who was ultimately to blame for bringing Heather's life to a premature end, And he's going to be discussing the legacy that she left behind. But first, I wanted to take you back to the day in question, the 10th of June in 2003, to tell the story of what happened from the other point of view that day. The point of view of the crew on that Chinook helicopter. Hopefully this will set some further context before we delve into the aftermath. At 10am that morning, just 15 minutes after Heather, Vicky and Jess had set off on their horse ride, an RAF helicopter bound for Hampshire left its airbase in North Yorkshire, approximately 90 miles from Market Raisin, where Heather and her friends lived. On board were four crew, as well as the crew who had piloted the helicopter the previous day. The four crew who were piloting the aircraft on this journey were pilot Flight Lieutenant Robinson, the co-pilot navigator Flight Lieutenant Wormerden, and Sergeants Leslie and McDonnell, who had various navigation and technical responsibilities on the flight. The Chinook helicopter in which they were travelling is a feat of engineering. If you are picturing a regular kind of helicopter, then please stop immediately. This is an absolute unit. Oh my god, I have seen these in person and they are huge. It's absolutely terrifying. They don't even look like they should be able to fly, do they? No. They are not a helicopter. I mean, technically they're a helicopter, but they are so far removed from a normal domestic or even commercial helicopter. They're just huge. At 30 metres long, this absolute belter of an aircraft is used by militaries across the world. Its twin engine and tandem rotor enable it to reach a top speed of 200 miles per hour, and that really is going some when you consider its 11-tonne bulk. It really is a beast in the sky, and as Bethan said, chances are, if you live near to an RAF airbase, then you will most definitely have seen these fly overhead. I live near an MOD site, and I've seen these, um, I've seen these fly over my house on, on lots of occasions, and they, they just look so scary and imposing, and they really are a mass of dark grey metal, and for me, they really evoke connotations of war and power. So back to that fateful flight. The pilot, Flight Lieutenant Robinson, was positioned at the front of the cabin in the right-hand seat. He'd been flying Chinook since 1996 and was an experienced pilot. Co-pilot navigator, Flight Lieutenant Wormerden, was positioned at the front of the cabin in the left-hand seat. His responsibilities on that flight were navigation, communications and to act as a lookout. Wormerden had joined the RAF in 1995, and at the time of this flight he had 1,900 hours of flying under his belt, 500 of which was on a Chinook helicopter. Sergeant Leslie was positioned at the rear of the cabin. His specific duties were to control passengers and freight if they had any on board, and also to assist as a lookout on the left-hand side of the aircraft. He was responsible for keeping an eye on the maintenance panel as well at the back of the aircraft and that monitored the gearboxes. Sergeant Leslie had 2,800 hours of flying under his belt and he'd been flying on Chinooks since 1991. 
Sergeant McDonnell was positioned at the front right door of the cabin. He was responsible for helping with the navigation and also assisting as a lookout, but on the right-hand side of the aircraft. It is not clear how many hours of flying he had under his belt, but I think it's probably safe to assume that he would have been similarly experienced as his colleagues on, on that flight. So the purpose of this flight was described as a low-level navigation exercise, a continuation of training for the crew. They'd spent a lot of time out in Iraq, but would now be getting back into flying in the UK, and consequently, they needed to get used to flying at low levels in a non-desert environment. And when I say low levels, I really do mean low levels. The crew was authorised to descend to just 50 feet, that's 15 metres, and to fly at that height for sustained periods of time. Now, obviously, flying at that height poses a number of serious risks to both the crew and, of course, people on the ground. During the five-year period between the 1st of April 1999 and the 31st of March 2004, the Ministry of Defence received over a 1,000 claims relating to low-flying military aircraft. These claims largely related to property damage and injury to livestock, but there were also 112 personal injury claims during that period. Most of these were as a result of horses being startled by military aircraft, which then caused all manner of accidents with riders being thrown from their horses, horse-drawn vehicles being overturned, and people being injured as they stood next to horses, presumably as a result of being kicked, knocked over, or even trampled. Of course, the MOD had and still have policies and procedures in place to prevent these kind of accidents from happening. Pilots and crew receive regular training, medicals and monitoring, some of which is covert, and this covert monitoring is specifically focused on aircraft height during low-flying missions. So the military can check that the aircraft was flying within its authorised parameters at all times. Additionally, the crew acting as lookout continually relay information to the pilot using quite straightforward language. So, for example, if the crew see horses in the near distance on the left-hand side of the aircraft, they will literally shout, horses left-hand side, and the pilot will then know to gain height and gently turn the aircraft to the right so as not to spook the horses. The crew plan their routes carefully, attempting to avoid riding schools, zoos and such like, and the aircraft itself is fitted with sensors and alarms which notify the crew if they fly below their authorised level. And until 1979, there were just a small number of low-flying zones across the UK, sparsely populated areas such as the Scottish Highlands, where aircraft could practice low-flying for sustained periods of time, without posing a significant risk to the public. So up until this point, the vast majority of the UK was protected from low-flying military aircraft, but that wasn't, as I said, until 1979. And since then, the majority, the vast majority of the UK is now a designated low-flying zone. So that was, as I said, only until 1979. Since then, a new law was passed and... Pretty much the whole of the UK is a designated low-flying zone. I think the only areas that the military can't fly uh, uh, for sustained periods of time at low altitude, I think it's just kind of like densely populated areas. I just find it absolutely ridiculous because I I totally get that they have to practice and they need to train. And how the hell are you going to fly into a potential war zone or a 
dangerous situation or something where you need to go and rescue people there's millions of scenarios you need to practice I get that but no like the moors go over the highlands like why the hell do they have to practice over like housing you know houses and people and and animals like I get I get the idea of potentially missing out on like majorly densely populated areas in case you crash but actually some of the countryside where it's not as densely populated but the animals are there you're going to cause who knows how much damage if those animals stampede or are injured or just like today's case people can be hurt from animals getting upset by all of this and it just blows my mind that they don't have a smaller amount of designated flying space yeah i find it i find it really weird and yeah i just find the whole concept of low flying for sustained periods of time at uh, uh, altitudes of literally 50 feet above the ground it uh, th- these aircrafts are going at like 200 miles an hour they can fly up to 200 miles an hour so it's just really weird isn't it it's so weird and i i still get why they need to do it i just think go do it somewhere where we're not like where there's no people yeah agree have a practice of flying a long distance first <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, oh. And of course, all of this doesn't prevent human error. And even if an aircraft is flying in accordance with all of the procedures set out by the military, it's got to be impossible to mitigate all risk to the public when flying basically what is an army tank only 50 feet above the ground. The first 20 minutes of the flight had been uneventful as the crew flew south over the English countryside that morning. At around 10.15, 10 minutes before they would cross paths with Heather and her two friends, Sergeant Leslie recalled Flight Lieutenant Robinson calling out, Horses just gone below. Sergeant Leslie remembers seeing a woman on a horse looking at them as they flew overhead. The horse was chewing grass and didn't appear to be startled. Now, if you're managing to keep up with the different crew and their responsibilities at this point, then you will know that Flight Lieutenant Robinson was the pilot. So you might ask, why would he need to make the call to alert the crew to the horse's presence? Surely, if he sees the horse, he will know to increase the aircraft's height so as to avoid startling the horse. The crew just wouldn't need to be told, but it is important that all of the crew are aware as they will then be able to see what happens after the aircraft has flown over the horse at low height. So if the horse bolts, for example, and they can see that the rider has been thrown to the ground or injured in some other way, they would then obviously alert the pilot to that, who would then stay in the vicinity, climbing even higher, so the crew could continue to monitor the situation. So it's kind of like the pilot would have made the call on that occasion so that the crew could monitor what happened in the immediate aftermath of that aircraft flying overhead and and if it if it is if it does look like there's been an accident then yeah the pilot will um, gain height and the crew will then monitor what's happening on the ground and I think from the research into this case that we did um, what I was quite amazed by is how everyone's kind of sat in a different position in the helicopter that they can almost see everything so Yes, that person at the front who's flying will say it. And then there's someone back right or back left who can then see things from a different angle. So it makes perfect sense. And don't forget, this is a military aircraft. They would have equipment on board that would allow them to see exactly what's happening on the ground, probably even the colour of the rider's lipstick or the horse's lipstick, which is a joke (laughs) our Patreon supporters might understand. (laughs) 
Um, and it's certainly the only joke I'll be making in this episode. But yeah, we had a Patreon bonus episode where uh, a bunch of uh, naughty people were going around putting lipstick on horses. So if it appears that the rider has been seriously injured, the crew would then radio for an ambulance from the cockpit before continuing on their journey. So they wouldn't land and, and provide assistance to the injured party, but they would certainly radio and get uh, an air ambulance sent out. So as I said, this call of horses just gone below at approximately 10.15 was insignificant. The horse wasn't startled, the rider wasn't injured, and the crew continued south towards Market Raisin, now on a metaphorical collision course with Heather Bell. In part one, Bethan talked about Heather alerting her friends to the fast-approaching Chinook. At this point, it was flying at around 140 miles an hour, covering more than two miles a minute. In her witness statement, Heather's friend Jess described the moment Heather alerted her to the helicopter and her initial panic as it approached the trio. She said, I can remember thinking, oh my god, the helicopter did indeed seem low. I couldn't hear it at the time and I can remember trying to calm myself down and thinking it was not making a noise, maybe everything will be alright. She went on to say, the helicopter continued on the same route, which meant that it came directly over the group, slightly to the back of me, and therefore directly over Heather. As she looked up, Jess said she remembers seeing what she described as a huge slab about 15 to 20 feet above me. She said, the noise at the time was tremendous, like a very, very loud constant drumming noise. Heather and Jess's friend Vicky recalled, The helicopter was massive, very dark grey in colour with two large lumps on either side of the main body and two legs underneath. The two propellers were huge and there was a large windscreen on the front and I could see people wearing helmets inside. The helicopter's presence was causing the crops in the field to move as Bethan said earlier. I heard the thumping noise of the helicopter and at this point I knew that the horses were going to bolt. No horses would have been able to endure this. I felt my horse tense and with that the helicopter was over us, completely blocking out the sun. And again, I just wanted to include this even though we talked about it in part one. She said it reminded me of a war film and I expected to see soldiers jump out. It was that low. Vicky described the helicopter going over the three friends at street lamp level. Now, as Bethan said in part one, Heather's horse bolted. She lost her balance and was tragically thrown to the ground. She sustained a severe head injury that would end her life just 24 hours later. The helicopter's crew continued on their journey, supposedly oblivious to Heather's accident. Lincolnshire police launched an investigation and liaised with the RAF in the hours following Heather's accident. RAF officials were able to identify the crew that had been in the vicinity at the time of the incident. And for me, at this point, things take a bit of a weird turn. As a result of the alleged negligence of the crew, a woman has been gravely injured. The police were conducting an investigation that could possibly result in manslaughter charges being brought against a crew, but their investigation was somewhat impeded by the RAF. When a detective from Lincolnshire Police inquired about the possibility of the RAF arranging drug and alcohol tests on the crew, they were told that this was not something they would contemplate. 
In my opinion at this point, there was a real arrogance coming from the RAF and there was RAF police involved. So it wasn't just the RAF, it was RAF police as well. But for me, if this was a civilian helicopter, things would have been very different. The police would have conducted drug and alcohol tests on the crew straight away. And it took months for the police to conduct interviews with all four members of the crew. The pilot, Flight Lieutenant Robinson, and the co-pilot navigator, Flight Lieutenant Wormerden, were interviewed two weeks after the incident had occurred, but Sergeants Leslie and McDonnell were not interviewed until October, some four months later. I didn't even get the two weeks, though. Two weeks after the incident occurred, they should be spoken to ten minutes after the incident occurred. They should be spoken to that same day while this is fresh in their minds. Absolutely, and they continued to fly in that period. So all of the flights, as you can probably understand, would sort of blur into one after a couple of weeks. And certainly after four months. Yeah, it's just their normal job where they do routine things and... Yeah, I just, I could not believe that it took this long to be interviewed. And it's a similar story for Jess and Vicky too. Their witness statements weren't taken until October either. And four months is a long time. It's not as easy to accurately recollect even a significant incident 16 weeks after it's occurred. And the other crew that were on board that fateful flight, they were never interviewed. So you might remember at the beginning of my part, I said that there were four crew who were piloting the aircraft on this particular flight. But there was also the crew that had piloted the aircraft on the previous day they were also on board albeit not in any kind of official capacity but you would think that they would have been interviewed but they weren't yeah at least just to be like can you corroborate yeah what did people say what did you see yeah absolutely crazy because of the passage of time there were conflicting and confusing accounts of this flight Some of the crew remembered two calls for horses, some three, but essentially they denied seeing Heather, Vicky and Jess. In their witness statements, Jess and Vicky claimed the aircraft flew over them at a height of approximately 20 feet, a height the aircraft was not authorised to fly at. The four crew denied this when they were interviewed, and to be fair, absolutely, um, analysis of the flight data showed the helicopter did not descend below 50 feet for the duration of the flight, and that was the minimum height at which it was authorised to fly at. And I have to say here, to accurately establish the height of an 11-ton slab of metal hovering above you in a terrifying situation would not have been an easy task. So I have no doubt that to Jess and Vicky, it did indeed appear to be flying over them at a much lower height than it was authorised to fly at. And I also think as well, you're sat up on a horse, so yeah, that's, you know, your your head is potentially eight, nine, ten feet above the ground anyway, depending on how tall you are, how tall the horse is, that sort of thing. Um, And in a scenario where you're absolutely terrified, you may imagine things that are closer, but even then, 50 feet above ground is still only, what, potentially 20? uh, No, that's a lie. But it could be like 35 to 40 feet above you. Yeah, pretty much, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so... So just 50 feet doesn't seem low enough to me. It seems too low to me. Yeah. Even though that's the law for them. Yeah. Ultimately, a report was prepared by Lincolnshire Police for the CPS and the decision was taken not to prosecute for manslaughter. 
At this point, the matter was handed over to the health and safety executive in line with the work-related deaths protocol. The inquest, which took place in October 2004, was presided over by Coroner Stuart Fisher and a jury. Since 1927, coroner's juries have rarely been used in England. Under the Coroner's Act 1988, a jury is only required to be convened in cases where a death occurred in prison, police custody or in circumstances which may affect public health or safety, as was the case here. A coroner's jury only determines the cause of death, its ruling does not commit a person to trial but it has at its disposal powers allowing jurors to comment in detail on deaths involving public authorities, in this instance the MOD, permitting detailed recommendations to be made in order to prevent similar deaths from occurring in the future. So I thought this was really interesting because we've seen this in a few different cases before. Yeah. Um, And it really had like nods to the Stardust nightclub and the fact that they're opening these inquests again now. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's... Whilst you may not necessarily have um, convictions and stuff, you will have recommendations and potentially laws changed. The coroner and the jury heard from various witnesses and experts, including Stephen Jowett, a helicopter expert with 40 years experience of flying helicopters, eight of which were during his time with the military. Jowett was critical of the RAF, saying he was not convinced the flight which ultimately resulted in Heather's death was necessary or in an appropriate area. He said the purpose of the military is to protect the Crown and its subjects. If, when training for this role, they kill a subject, they are manifestly negligent and have failed in their duty. He went on to say it would not be acceptable for the army to conduct live weapon firing in an area likely to result in the death of innocent people. Much time, effort and expenditure is used to protect the public from such danger. Yet some in the RAF assert that low-flying training over UK land areas is so important that it's worth risking human life for. It is suggested that now it is the time to challenge this assertion. And Jowett praised the crew on the flight that resulted in Heather's death, saying they flew exceptionally well and that there was nothing to indicate that Flight Lieutenant Robinson or his crew acted negligently or in any way inconsistent with current rules and regulations. So the crew had absolutely done nothing wrong in in regards to how they flew the aircraft. We have no evidence that they did anything wrong. Um, But Jowett said, in his opinion, the MOD low-flying policy, which included the whole or most of the UK land areas, as I said earlier, was a major contributory factor in Heather's death. And he concluded by saying the risk of other incidents of this nature happening again will remain high as long as the MOD continues with its low-flying policy in the UK. So the finger of blame wasn't being pointed in the crew's direction, but very much in the direction of the MOD's low-flying policy, which was criticised not just by Jowett, but by others too. The only thing that I also, I did think if I was on the jury or if I was at this inquest is that the, the ladies on the horse could see the people inside the helicopter. They could see their faces and their helmets. So how on earth did they not see what had happened in the aftermath of them going over these horses. And that to me is, whilst not necessarily flying in a dangerous manner, they're still doing their job fine, they didn't break any of the rules, 
They then didn't hover overhead and check that the ambulances were called. They then didn't do any of the stuff that you talked about at the beginning, which is the whole point of having the lookouts and shouting out that you're looking out for horses or whatever you've shouted out that you've seen, because they should have been aware that somebody had been thrown from their horse, not just carry on and then not remember even seeing them. It's a really fair point. They were challenged on this um, in their interviews. All four of the crew um, were challenged on why they hadn't seen the three riders on horseback. And there is a bit more to it. So the three riders were behind a hedge. Um, there was technically a gap in that hedge, um, but but they were behind a hedge. And also the crew talked about low-flying missions in um, in the Gulf, and they said that it was quite common for them to fly directly over soldiers that they were supposed to be picking up. And the soldiers would then kind of radio and say, you've literally just flown over us. Did you not see us? And they, they didn't see them. Um, so, so in their defence... Apparently that is that is understandable that they didn't see Heather, Jess or Vicky that day. We can only go on what was presented at exactly. the Exactly. And they're the ones who have flying experience of hundreds of hours or thousands of hours. So I, I I do get that. I just I don't personally understand how that can be the case. I just yeah. don't get it. I think it's a fair it's a fair question to ask and it's I think this is up to our listeners really mm-hmm. to get in touch with us and, and to kind of talk about and for us to discuss. But it's a really difficult one because we, we have to go on the evidence that was presented. And I, I accept that there, there would be instances where they have flown over soldiers and, and literally not seen them mm-hmm. um, and they've had to then go back to pick them up. So I, I do get that in, yeah. in all fairness. And I think the main thing with the inquest is that those questions are asked and Actually, the official verdict is taken from the answers and whether they're deemed valid and correct. Yeah. So Jowett, the helicopter expert, presented two recommendations to Coroner Stuart Fisher. He said, one, the MOD should make better use of flight simulators to reduce the risk posed to the public. And two, that if after exhaustive efforts that proved impossible, the MOD should seriously limit low flying to a few sparsely populated designated low-flying areas, as had been the case pre-1979. The health and safety executive presented their findings to the coroner and the jury, stating that there was evidence that Heather's horse was spooked by a low-flying RAF helicopter, but that the helicopter was flown in accordance with current MOD low-flying policy. The health and safety executive did say, however, that there may be a conflict between the requirements of health and safety legislation and the MOD policy, but equally, even if they did find that to definitely be the case, the MOD has immunity of statutory enforcement of health and safety legislation. Fucking hell, try, try saying that after a glass of wine. <laughs> I do think these are very fair recommendations. But that's frustrating, isn't it? So even if the health and safety executive says this needs to change, the MOD don't have to. They can say, we'll listen to you, but they don't have to do anything. And that is very frustrating. 
Yeah, that's correct. So if if this was a private company that had flown a helicopter and everything else that happened happened, then the health and safety executive would be able to legally impose changes to that company's policies and procedures. Um, but yeah, because it's the MOD, they literally have immunity from statutory enforcement of any new legislation, which I kind of get in one way because what they do is very dangerous. But in another way, that that is going to result in um, the risk to the general public not being mitigated as much as it could or perhaps some might say should be. I think it's so difficult because they are an entity to themselves and should be because ultimately as a country we'll rely on them in wartime or for for a lot of things. So I do appreciate that that should be the case. It's just frustrating, isn't it, that that can't be a recommendation that's actually a recommendation that they're told look you really 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 should do it rather than but who's going to listen anyway yeah so i just wanted to summarize at this point um so first of all despite heather's friends jess and vicky saying the chinook was flying at a height of around 20 feet there was no evidence for this it was subsequently proven through flight data that the helicopter did not descend below 50 feet Steve Jowett, the helicopter expert, found no wrongdoing on the part of the crew, but he was heavily critical of the MOD's low-flying policy, and the health and safety executive concluded that Heather's accident was as a result of her horse being spooked by the low-flying Chinook, but again, they said the crew were flying in accordance with the MOD low-flying policy. Um, In any case, it doesn't really matter whether the helicopter was flying at its authorised height or not for me. As you said earlier, Bethan, even at 50 feet, which was the lowest height it was authorised to fly at, it would have been flying too low to see Heather, Jess and Vicky on horseback with enough time to spare to do anything about it, in my opinion. I think that really is, yeah, that kind of sums it up as at that low height and when you finally do see the horses, if you do see them, to go back up again, they'll already be terrified. Yeah. This is a 30 metre long aircraft. It weighs 11 tonnes. It's flying. It's authorised to fly at just 15 metres above the ground for sustained periods of time at speeds of up to 140 miles an hour. It's, it's just bonkers to me. I mean, it would be terrifying to me as a human who understands what's going on. I think it would still make my heart race and it would still have an effect on me that I would be shocked and a little bit scared and a little bit nervous. And I have full logical thought that it is a helicopter and it's just flying over me and it's not going to land on me or kill me or attack me. I know that and I think it would still make me feel nervous. So yeah, I completely agree. Heather's death was officially ruled as an accident and whilst no individual or organisation was found to be criminally responsible, the jury did find that the MOD's low-flying policy was insufficient and they also found that the organisation had failed to take appropriate action to protect members of the public, including horse riders, from its low-flying aircraft. Areas of the MOD's policy that were criticised by the jury included rotary-winged aircraft being allowed to fly as low as 50 feet, no prior warning to members of the public that low flying was due to take place, and insufficient use of simulators in the low flying training of pilots. So a real common sense approach from them as far as I'm concerned. 
The coroner, Stuart Fisher, concluded the inquest by saying, We have two girls who no longer have a mother as a result of this incident. I heard 39 witnesses giving their evidence. It does not surprise me that the jury has made findings that are critical of the Ministry of Defence. Following the inquest, the coroner wrote to the Ministry of Defence in November 2004 under Rule 43 of the coroner's rules with recommendations of actions to be taken to reduce the possibility of such an accident happening again. His recommendations included low flying only to be allowed in dedicated areas of the country, the introduction of devices for riders that would alert the aircraft to their presence, and increased use of simulators to reduce the amount of low flying taking place. On receipt of the letter, a comprehensive review was undertaken into the conduct of low flying training in helicopters, and Wing Commander John Taylor of the RAF Director of Air Staff, Lower Airspace, said, The death of Mrs Bell was a tragedy and the Ministry of Defence extends its deepest sympathy to her family. We have listened carefully to the findings of the inquest and will of course consider very seriously the recommendations of the coroner. The conclusions of the review were published in a report on the 14th of September in 2005. While they said it would not be possible to accept all of the recommendations outlined in the report, the Ministry of Defence did respond, in their words, positively and constructively. Consequently, major changes were introduced to the way in which low-flying training by military helicopters was administered which improved the information available to the public through an MOD free phone advisory service. So essentially a dedicated phone number the public could call which would then provide them with information about low-flying activity in particular areas at particular times. In addition, the Ministry of Defence launched a joint safety campaign with the British Horse Society offering practical advice to horse riders. They also began providing free high visibility jackets to horse riders in a bid to make them more obvious to low-flying military aircraft. That idea, in conjunction with the British Horse Society, was designed to help pilots spot riders before they fly too low and spook horses. And I think in general it's a great idea anyway because when you're driving your car you'll spot people a lot easier and that side of things too. It really is and and the crew did say in their defence that horses can blur into the background, into vegetation, um, depending on what colour they are. So I think, yeah, to have riders in brightly coloured clothes is, is a great move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't, I can't remember if I'm going to come on to it, but I'll kind of cover it off briefly now. This dedicated phone number that the public could call, um, it was, it was criticised really because it was very limited in terms of the information that could be relayed to the public. Because quite often when the military conduct low flying exercises, it's a it's at quite short notice, so you could almost phone that number at nine o'clock in the morning, go out riding at ten, having been told that there was no low flying activity in that area, and within that hour something's changed and the military do need to conduct low flying. So it did come up for some criticism, but fair play to, to the MOD for launching it. I think it was a, a really good idea. I think it's a great idea as long as it's implemented properly. And so I see what you're saying completely. Additionally, the MOD put in place standardised procedures around evidence gathering in the aftermath of an incident involving a low-flying aircraft. 
So the detail around this is fairly vague. However, I am certain this would involve the military either administering their own drug and alcohol tests on crew or at least allowing an investigating police force to do that. Uh, so basically, yeah, following a, an incident or a, an accident, essentially where a member of the public's been injured as a result of low-flying aircraft, it did sound to me like they would have more robust evidence-gathering procedures, and I I feel that that was in relation to drug and alcohol testing, because, as I said, if that was a civilian helicopter, the crew would have been tested immediately after that flight, But because this was the MOD, and in my opinion, they were just so arrogant, it was like, no, that's not something we'll be considering. Thank you very much. It just never happened. So I hope that that would happen now. Other recommendations were put forward by the coroner, but ultimately brushed off by the MOD. This included the recommendation to enhance the alarm system, which warned the crew if it had descended below its authorised altitude. They said they saw no operative value in doing this and insisted it was the crew's responsibility to ensure the aircraft maintained appropriate heights throughout its flight, which I sort of get because the crew will be monitoring the aircraft's height. That's part of their job. Um, But why not just have something that's just a bit more robust in terms of an alarm system that sounds to the whole crew if the aircraft goes down to 40 feet, for example? I don't like to defend the RAF in this case, but from the way that the the alarm system was described, I know they're saying the recommendation is um, to enhance this alarm system, but my understanding of the alarm system is actually everybody on that aircraft would have been aware that you're going below the 50 feet or whatever the recommended feet was from the way they I described it. I don't think it. they were. I don't, I'm pretty sure from the research I've done that that alarm wouldn't sound for every member of the crew. No, but there were so flashing lights, weren't there? I'm sure there one were of flashing the pilots lights, said that there were flashing lights. There's flashing lights if it goes below 50 feet and then if it goes below 40 feet, an alarm would sound. Yeah. But that, that alarm, I don't think, would sound to the whole crew. I don't think so. However, I... I get that they all have a job to play and so only certain people potentially need to even, yeah. I don't know, like I, I get the the idea is to enhance that alarm system but from the way that the pilots described it in their interviews, it sounded pretty informative for them anyway and they'd be trained to pay attention to it so I kind of get them saying, no, we're not going to do that. It is the crew's responsibility and everyone has a job to play or a role to play in, in flying so I, I kind of get that. What I found really interesting from reading the transcripts of the interviews the police did with the crew, the crew said in their defence they absolutely are able to you know, measure the height of the aircraft just through sight. So they, they they are so accurate, they can literally estimate how high the aircraft is from the ground to within about five feet, I think. Yeah. yeah, because that's their job. That's what they do. So they kind of said when they were challenged on whether the aircraft was flying below 50 feet or indeed even at 20 feet, as some of the witnesses said, that they were absolutely like, no, that is not possible. We all would have known if it was flying at that height and we just would not fly at 20 feet above the ground because it is so dangerous and we would want to preserve our own life so uh, with with the flight data showing that they didn't descend below 50 feet and and that account of of it i i do absolutely accept that that the aircraft didn't fly below 50 feet so a recommendation to cease low-flying activity over market raisin the town that encompasses the village of middle raisin 
um, and the location of the accident was accepted, actually. So as a mark of respect to the Bell family, the military introduced an avoidance for military helicopters over market raisin for five years. Having looked into this in more detail, I could see that now, as a general rule, rotary aircraft are authorised to fly to 100 feet, although it is clearly stated that they may still descend below that altitude if it's really required. But yeah, from all the research I've done into the MOD's low flying policy now, it does look like uh, military rotary aircraft, so Chinook helicopters, for example, don't as a rule fly below 100 feet, which I thought was great. Military low flying still happens across the majority of the UK and there are, of course, still accidents as a result of this. So I just wanted to kind of talk about my thoughts and I know you'll chip in, Bethan, as well. But for me, I'm just really shocked that the military conduct sustained low flying across the majority of the UK There are literally tens of thousands of hours per year of low-flying military happening across our country. And I understand the value it brings, as you said, Bethan. We totally get that it's required. But as Jowett summarised perfectly for me, the whole point of the military is to protect its crown and its subjects. The MOD's practice of sustained low-flying goes totally against its core objective to protect the public and low flying continues to endanger human life. And there are plenty of places in the UK that you could low fly with nobody around for hundreds of miles. Yeah. There's absolutely plenty of opportunity to practice. And actually, if you, as the RAF or the MOD, genuinely feel that it is in the public's best interest for those helicopter pilots to practice across a major town or city, you need to be warning that place two weeks in advance we're going to be doing training missions a bit like when on the motorway they're going to be traveling with a big massive like bit of a helicopter or an an airplane they put out a warning don't they look long wide like load on the motorway at this general time if you then decide to go out on your horse that is your decision you've made and you've got all the evidence and the information to make a choice or you know if you've got cattle you may want to bring them in because over that weekend we will be doing xyz it's not a military secret it doesn't you know it's not going to mean that there's any sort of danger to the mod or the raf in my opinion i may be totally wrong mm. but there's plenty of space they slightly. could just go on the moors <laughs> Um, And to be fair, though, to the MOD, because obviously we have the internet now, it wouldn't have been as big a thing in 2003. um, But the military do publish or the government do publish timetables of low flying in particular areas across the UK. Oh, that's so interesting to know. But It is. But I think the issue you've got is that they can publish that in advance, but then it can be subject to change at very short notice. Or also um, you can then have sustained low flying uh, that that wasn't necessarily scheduled in, so it's just so it is so difficult for the MOD, but that that's no excuse really. Um, another issue I have um, with this is that during the inquest, information was presented that to me clearly indicated that the MOD thought they were above the law. Um, possibly that's still the case. I don't know. Um, 
So basically the failure of the military to conduct drug and alcohol testing on the crew, this was assertively dismissed and, in my opinion, arrogantly dismissed. Other evidence was presented at the inquest, which I find a little suspect as well. Um, So at first the police were told by the MOD that the Chinook helicopter was not equipped with flight recording data, i.e. a black box. The MOD then later corrected themselves and advised the police that there was a black box on board. And you wouldn't make a mistake of that you would I know surely so, yeah and of course this is how we know the helicopter didn't descend below its authorized mm-hmm. altitude but it came to light that there was also a voice recording on the aircraft but it relooped every hour so it would literally record for an hour and then kind of go back on itself and beginning and start beginning to record again all over again kind of thing um, the helicopter wasn't grounded after the flight in question and therefore any voice recordings were lost due to the subsequent flights that happened that day and even that annoyed me because the helicopter should have been grounded absolutely for yeah. the investigation yeah. it should not have gone back out again and I, I I totally accept that the recording wouldn't have covered the period of Heather's accident, but it would have recorded the last hour of the flight. And I think, it, you know, I, it would be interesting to know what was discussed in the last hour of that flight. I think that would have been very interesting. It could have had very important information that either is, oh, that was a bit mad that we saw those horses, but we then didn't see anything afterwards. Yeah. Or, interesting, we haven't seen any horses this entire flight which then backs them up. Absolutely. It could have been, you know, it could have been the pilot saying, can you just tell me when the last call for horses was? And they're saying it was at 10.15, which was 10 minutes before the accident happened. And that would have, like you said, Bethan, it would have corroborated everything Mm -hmm. they'd said. So I I think that that's quite interesting that it wasn't grounded and that meant any recording was lost. The MOD did undertake a serious review of their procedures and a number of changes and initiatives were made and implemented. However, there were some that were just cosmetic, in my opinion, and others that were simply brushed off as not necessary. But I think it's been interesting for us to have a discussion around this because we have both spent hours and hours and hours researching this case, but we've actually not discussed it together until now so I think it's quite interesting that you have an acceptance around some of those recommendations not being carried through by the military because in your opinion they they weren't necessarily going to add value I think that's interesting that that you've got that opinion and, and I accept some of that as well so it's changed my mind a little bit oh have I oh only a but bit. I do think don't like, get excited we're not in the military we're not in the RAF we don't know it fully so from an outsider's point of view i think it is quite easy to say no you should do this you should do that and i and that i guess is the whole point of the jury is to give all those recommendations if the military decide not to go ahead with it they must have good reason because ultimately they could be questioned on that yeah by somebody so and i think they were Mm. they were challenged on whether they could increase the length of recording of voices in uh, in future flights but the military said in order to do that it would it would it was just like a kind of logistical nightmare to upgrade the equipment without it impacting on all of the other technical aspects of a Chinook helicopter which I, I do understand so to me the MOD accepts the risk to human life as an inevitable consequence of their low flying program to them the benefits outweigh the risks 
But I have to ask, what would the outcome have been in this case had this been a corporation rather than a government department? If that corporation had a self-governed internal policy allowing its pilots to descend to dangerously low altitudes and someone lost their life as a result, would executives at that company be charged with corporate manslaughter? I personally think they probably would. It is really difficult, isn't it? Because I think for me as just a normal person in a normal job that just goes around my daily life, any death or any injury to somebody isn't an inevitable consequence of something. That's not good enough. However, I guess to them, their job is saving lives in en masse And maybe that is fair that within the military, the benefits outweigh the risks. But I have to totally agree with you that if this was a private company, there is no way that 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 would have been okay. And it doesn't sit right with me whatsoever. However, I am well aware that I am saying that from a very emotional point of view rather than a factual point of view. So... I think maybe I have to disagree with you in that that's necessarily a criticism. If I think about it logically, then yeah, maybe from the MOD's point of view, they need to do the training. It just doesn't sit right with me, though, personally. I I totally, I do understand where you're coming from. And I do, I do understand that low flying has to take place, low flying training, because that could result in the military being able to save a thousand lives. And they do accept that there is that inevitable risk to public life as a result of these training activities. I just think they need to perhaps mitigate the risk a little bit more. So they could use simulators a little bit more. They could not descend as quite as low as they they do descend. And also they, for me, ultimately, I think we need to go back to pre-1979 arrangement where most of the UK is a designated designated no low flying zone and as as we've said throughout part two of this episode use the scottish highlands use the moors um use really sparsely populated areas of the countryside which they do but i it just really worries me that they can still fly at low levels over uh, busy areas. I think I read something where if there's less than a, a, a 10,000 people population, they can still fly over it, which is, is quite worrying for me as a member of the public. Yes. I can, yeah. It just blows my mind. So I do want to make it clear once again that the crew of the Chinook helicopter mm. on that fateful flight were not responsible for Heather's death. The MOD's low flying policy is to blame. And to be fair, that's what came out in the inquest. Emma finished her email to Betham with the following, which we felt was the perfect ending to the show. Thank you for listening. As you always try to do, Bethan, I'm ending this on a personal note. One of the most wonderful things my mum did was keep diaries every day of her life. Me and my sister have her diaries and have read her extracts from the days we were each born, when she met dad. It is a lovely thing to have and I'm so glad she did it. This is my favourite extract from her diaries. Well girls, I'll try and keep things going for you. I love you both very, very much, even when I'm cross with you. I'm so very honoured to have two lovely girls. 